morning we will be in Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, verse 32, or you can follow along on our event page on the Version Bible app. Uh, if you don't know how to get there, when you open the app under more and then events, it should be the uh, first church or one of the first churches that pop up on there. And uh, last week we started a series called The Road to Easter. And week one, we talked about the road through Jerusalem, and it's known as the triumphal entry. And uh, JP talked a little bit about that. The people were throwing cloaks and palm branches in the street. They were praising, they were worshiping, and the religious leaders were there, and they were fit to be tied. They didn't like what Jesus was teaching. They didn't like that the people were worshiping him, and so they tell him to stop. And Jesus gets to a point where he can overlook Jerusalem and he looks at Jerusalem and he just starts sobbing. He just starts crying at what he's seen because he knows the hearts of the people. He knows that in just a few days, it's gonna turn from worship to crucify him. And he's prophesied what will eventually happen to Jerusalem in the fall of Jerusalem. And so now we come to our next road and it's the road through the Garden of Gethsemane. And in this story of the Garden of Gethsemane, every, every gospel talks about what takes place in the garden. And it forms a giant picture of agony, of sorrow, of despair. It's gripping, it's, it's heartbreaking to look at what happens in Gethsemane. There's spiritual warfare happening in Gethsemane. We see Jesus being tempted, and he's been tempted before. He's been tempted in the wilderness. He's been tempted by Satan to avoid the cross. When he shared, hey, I'm gonna go to the cross with his disciples, that Peter, no, no, you can't, you won't, you can't do that. And Jesus replies, get behind me, Satan, this test of trying to get Jesus away from the cross. And here, a lot of people refer to this as the last temptation of Jesus. And it's a battle and there's warfare and it is, gripping and heartbreaking everything that we see here in our text this morning that even in the midst of this garden even in the midst of the things that we see in this garden jesus shows us some things that we need to take to hearts and so we're going to start in verse 32 and go through verse 34 and it tells us this it says they went to a place called gethsemane and jesus said to his disciples sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. And so this garden in Gethsemane, the word Gethsemane, it's a word that literally means press of oils. An oil press was something that would be used to press the oil out of olives, it was in a garden-like enclosure in an olive orchard on or by the Mount of Olives. Makes sense. And Jesus and uh, his disciples find this as a familiar place. There is something familiar. We see them in this garden from time to time. Because of that, it's likely that this was a private olive grove that they had permission to be in. 
because they do return to this spot from time to time. And when they get to Gethsemane, he tells his disciples to sit there while he prays. Sit here while I go and pray. But he takes with him a few of his disciples. He takes Peter, James, and John. This was the inner circle of the disciples. They were the leaders of the disciples. They were three of the first four that were called. Mark 1, 16 through 20 tells the story and says, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When they had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. These were three important men. Again, they were leaders, and a lot of times we see in scriptures these three involved with Jesus. They are going with Jesus to special events, special occasions in his ministry. For example of this, in Mark chapter 5, when he raises Jairus' daughter uh, from the dead, we see in Mark 5, 37, he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And in Mark chapter 9, verse 2, it says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. And so these three men are going with him into the garden, and they're going to learn a valuable lesson in the garden on this evening. But we see Jesus take them with him, and it says he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. These are some strong words here to describe the emotional state that Jesus is in. The word distressed here, it means to throw into terror or amazement. And he has reason to be thrown into terror or amazement, does he not? Thinking about what is about to come, thinking about all the events that are about to unfold before him. He's never seen these things before, and here he is in amazement to throw into terror I would be in that same state, would you not, if you knew everything that was about to take place? Another word here that's used is troubled. And the word here for troubled, it means not to just be troubled, but great distress or anguish and depressed. Strong words to describe Jesus' emotional state. And a matter of fact, he continues on to say himself, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Overwhelmed with sorrow. This is a phrase that is a Greek adjective, and it means very sad, exceedingly sorrowful, overcome with sorrow so much as to cause one's death. Very sad, exceedingly sorrowful, so much as to cause one's death. How filled with sorrow is he exactly? Well, Luke gives us some details. In Luke chapter 22, 43, it says that he was in such a state that God sent an angel to him to strengthen him, to give him strength because he was to the point of death. He continues in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, we see how stressed he is. It says, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. To be so stressed, to be so emotionally distraught that you start to sweat blood. 
this is an actual medic medical condition. It is a rare medical condition, but it is an actual medical condition. It's called hematidrosis. And hematidrosis, what it is, it's a condition in which the capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture, causing them to exude blood. It often occurs under conditions of extreme physical or emotional stress. It is rare, but it's in those conditions where it is a life and death situation to be so anxious, to be so stressed in a life and death situation, it is possible to sweat blood. And so we see all of these words, deeply distressed, troubled, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And why? What's causing this situation? Well, there's a numerous amount of reasons why he's feeling this way. The upcoming betrayal by one of his disciples. The mock trials that he's going to have to go through. The people who were just worshiping him are soon going to be shouting, crucify him. To carry his cross and to be hung on that same cross while people mock him, all of these are great explanations as to why he is feeling so much sorrow, why he is feeling so much anxiety, why he is feeling all of these things. These are all explanations, but it's deeper than that. It's not just these events that's about to unfold, no. It's what these events represent. You see the weight of sin all thrown on to this man. Isaiah 53, 6, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The weight of sin that will be thrown on him someone who was holy, somebody who was without sin, to be the one to carry the burden of all of that sin. But you see, it's not just that. No, it's also for the first time ever, he will be turned away from the Trinity and the Father will turn his face from him. God cannot look sin in the eye. God cannot look at sin. He cannot be in the presence of sin. And so for the first time, Jesus will have to experience what it's like to be separated from the Trinity Isaiah 59, 2, but your inequities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. All of these reasons, all of these things explain why Jesus is in the state that he's in. But he tells them to stay here and keep watch. Now, they're not keeping watch to be like, oh, hey, Jesus, the enemies are coming, let's go. And Jesus already knows what's going on. You see, this is not a watching for people to come. No, this is something different. Luke gives us this in his gospel. In Luke twenty-two forty. he says, On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. And we'll see that phrase again later. But what he's saying when he says keep watch, he's not saying keep watch for somebody coming. No, what he's saying is join me in spiritual warfare. Keep watch that the enemy does not come and tempt you, that he does not come and bring you down. They're joining Jesus in spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6, 18, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Alert, keep on watch, pray. And we're gonna see they're gonna struggle with this. This is gonna be something difficult for them. But he continues, and uh, the text continues, 
verse 35 and 36. It says, going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Mark tells us that Jesus went a little bit further by himself. Luke chapter 22, 41 tells us that he went a stone's throw away. I like how Mark Moore sums it up humorously by saying how far that is exactly depends on the size of the stone and one's biceps. But it seems like he went just far enough away to have a private conversation with the Father. Some say that it had to have been at least a distance to where the disciples could hear him because they're writing about the event, but I think the problem with that is they're struggling to stay awake and how much of this conversation could they have actually heard. But either way, he goes and he has this amazing prayer. He lifts up this prayer to the Father, and it's such a blessing that we see this, that we have this text, because in this text we see the humanity of our Savior. And the first thing he prays is, Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic word for Father, and so he's saying, Father, Father. This is a word that carried a familial intimacy and familiarity. This was the word that a Jewish child would use to address their earthly father. And a Jew would never use this word when talking about or talking to God because it was seen as something inappropriate in prayer because it was too familiar. Most would not even have actually called him father. But this shows us the relationship between Christ and his father, that he can say, Abba, Father, Father, Father. And what does he ask? Well, he says, everything is possible for you. Everything is possible for you. You can do all things, and theoretically, this is true. God can do all things. He can do whatever he wants to, whenever he wants to, however he wants to. He can do whatever he wants. But let me tell you one thing he does not do. He does not go back on his word. And it had been prophesied and it had been told that this was the plan. This was what was needed. This was what is going to happen. As JP said, this was planned. And he prays, let this cup pass from me. Take this cup from me. The cup was an Old Testament symbol for the wrath of God. Psalm 75, 8, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Isaiah 51, 22, This is what your sovereign Lord says, Your God who defends his people, See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. And so... Father, it's, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup from me. Please take this cup from me. And JP asked the question, what if? What if Jesus was never crucified? What if Jesus never went to the cross? And I think John MacArthur gives a really good answer for that. And he says, if he doesn't go to the cross, then we have some big problems. Satan wins. Heaven is empty. Hell is full. The Bible isn't true, the promises of God are lies, and there is no salvation. If Jesus avoids the cross, all of these things become true. And what's interesting is I had never thought about this or never even considered this until I was reading 
a lot of notes and stuff this week, and there's a lot of people who look at this text and they ask the question, is this Jesus just simply not wanting to obey? Is, is just Jesus being weak? One person went so far as once to tell one of the commentators, how come so many martyrs have rushed into willingness to die, and yet here's Jesus asking this to be passed from him? No, I don't agree with any of those questions. And I think we need to understand something very important here. This is perfectly acceptable for somebody who is holy. Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords. He is God. He is holy. And so the thought of having the weight of sin pressed down upon him to be separated from the Father, it is natural for somebody in his position to have these emotions. And, and what are we asking from Jesus? Be stoic. Be heroic. Just say, I'm going to go and I'm going to knock out the cross and I'm going to raise and everything's going to be wonderful. Do we want that stoic side of Jesus? Well, I think Mark Moore makes a really good point. And he says, finally, had Jesus marched like a stoic through the passion, we could have had little hope of him understanding our human frailty. It is paradoxically his humanity that draws us to his divinity. It is because of what he has gone through. It's because of how he deals in this situation. It's because of these emotions that I can look at Jesus and I can say, you understand everything that I've been through. You understand my pain, my suffering, my heartbreak. You understand it because you felt the same way and you've gone through the same thing. And to think about this, again, he became sin on the cross. On that cross, he will become sin. This holy God will become sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And not only does he become sin, on his body weighs the burden of taking those sins. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. I can't say it enough. Again, the idea to carry the weight of sin for the world, for someone who had no sin to be sin, to be separated from the Father, we can't possibly imagine what that was like. In Hebrews 5, 7, I love how the author of Hebrews writes these words about Jesus. He says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. He offered up prayers and petitions and fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him. And he was heard. And he may go to the cross, and he may die on that cross, but three days later he will be raised from the grave. He will beat death. And so he's going through all of this, these emotions, and I think BibleRef.com, they, they ask the question that we should be asking. And it's this, if Jesus, who would bear this separation for half a day, is on the edge of death just anticipating it, why do we take our relationship with God so lightly? Why do we, when we look at Jesus and we see that in this moment, he's so distraught, so emotional, thinking about what's about to happen to be the one to carry the weight of our sin, to be the one who is going to have God turn his face from him. 
for him, for just even for a few hours, will this be the case? And he is to the point of death. If this is what he's going through, why do we not take our relationship with God more seriously? And so, I think that's a question we should all ask. But look what he says. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Let your will be done. Even though I wish there was some other way, even though I have to carry the weight of sin, even though I have to be separated from you, let your will be done. Let your plan unfold. Let whatever, let what's about to happen, happen. Let your will be done. Amazing words. Then we see in verse 37 through 38, we return to the disciples. And it says, And he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, Are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so here he goes back and he calls Peter Simon. A lot of times when we see Jesus refer to Peter as Simon after he's had his name change, it's usually to refer when Simon or when Peter is acting like his old self. And so he says, Simon, and to the other disciples, can't you just stay up and keep watch? Can't you stay up and pray? Couldn't for an hour, couldn't you just stay and watch and pray? Oh, and I bet this does not feel good for Peter after what has already taken place earlier in Mark 14 and verses 29 through 31. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered today. Yes, tonight before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Just after saying that, now they're struggling to stay awake. They're, they're, stay, they're struggling to pray. But I think we need to look at this, and I think we need to be honest with ourselves and say we would probably be in the same boat. Because Luke actually gives us some extra insight. In Luke chapter twenty-two forty-five, it says, When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. You get it, don't you? I mean, I understand it. Have you ever just been filled with sorrow to the point where all you want to do is take a nap? You've been sad, you just want to go to sleep and, you know, get away from that sorrow for just a moment. And they do have reasons to be sorrowful, right? I mean, a betrayer among them. They are told they will flee. Nation will turn against Jesus. Religious leaders don't like him at all so much. In fact, they want to kill him. Jesus pronounced judgment on Jerusalem. I think they have reason to feel pretty sorrowful in this moment. But they struggle and so here's what Jesus tells them. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The word watch here, it's from a Greek root word that means to give strict attention to, to be cautious and active. And the thing that they need to be cautious against, the thing they need to pay strict attention to, the thing that they need to be active against is sin. 
And now when you're reading this, you might not see temptation as we would normally think of the things that tempt us each and every day, but they will face things in their life after this moment. Difficulties will come in their lives after this moment. What are those things? Well, they will fall into despair. They will fear the Jewish leaders more than they trust God. John chapter 20, verse 19, on the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. They're going to reject the news of Jesus' resurrection. In Luke chapter 24, 10 through 11, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. You know, they, and that's not even mentioning what Peter will do, deny him three times. Bible ref again brings this up. It says, in the Bible, passive verbs of feelings and beliefs are treated as action. What we believe and think directly affect what we do. Faith that does not result in action is not real faith, but self-delusion. It's like what James says in James 2.26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And so they need to be active. They need to keep watch. They need to be praying. They say they believe. They say that they wouldn't fall away. And so what they need to do in this moment is they need to pray. And I can't help but think that Peter is looking back on this moment when he writes in 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I can't help but think he looked back at this moment and thought, man, it's true. The, the enemy is around us and he is trying to devour us. And Jesus tells him, hey, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing to do what is right, but our flesh is weak. Oh man, if there was anybody who understood this, it had to be the Apostle Paul, wasn't it? Romans seven fifteen through 20, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. What I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but the, it is the sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. And so really, what Paul is saying is, I want to do good things, but because of the sinful nature that is in me, I can't do the good things. I struggle to do the good things. I keep returning to the bad things that I do not want to do. And that's what Jesus is saying. Keep praying because our spirit is willing to do what is good and right and holy, but our flesh, our sinful nature is weak, and you are going to fall if you do not pray. You need to keep praying and keep in watch. And notice something here. In the midst of all of this that's going on with Jesus, in the midst of the situation that Jesus finds himself in, in the midst of this struggle, you see how much he cares. He cares for these disciples and he encourages them to pray so that they can master the flesh. Pray so that you can take control, that you can take ownership over the flesh and you can do what is right. And so, the text continues, verse 39 through 42. 
Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And so Mark tells us that Jesus went back and he prayed again the same thing that he had been praying. And in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 26, 42, it tells us he went away a second time and he prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Father, if there is no other way, if this is the only way possible for this to all go down the way it needs to, if this is the only thing that can happen, then let your will be done. And again and again, we see the same thing. Jesus goes and he prays for God's will to be done. And the disciples, they keep falling asleep. But now the time has come. The time has come. The hour has come. The Son of Man would be delivered into the hands of sinners His betrayer will come. Judas will betray him with a kiss. They will arrest him and everything begins to unfold. And we'll pick back up on that next week. But staying in the garden, I think that even in all of this, Jesus shows us some things. What does he show us? Well, for starters, Jesus showed us obedience. Jesus showed us obedience. What better example in all of scripture do we find for obedience than Jesus Christ? Philippians 2.8 tells us, In being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Romans 5.19 tells us, For just as though the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Jesus has laid down for us an example of what it means to be obedient to God, no matter what the situation. And we've talked about this a lot over the last several weeks when looking at the story of Abraham and how obedient Abraham was and and even when things didn't seem to be going the way he wanted them to be, even when he thought, okay, God, what's going on? I'm older, and none of these promises have been fulfilled. He was obedient, but Jesus gives us this great picture of what it means to be obedient, to be obedient to God no matter what, to follow his will no matter what. No matter the situation, no matter the spot we find ourselves in, we have to be obedient to God's will, even when it is not what we would want for ourselves. Because in that moment, when we're tempted to say, no, God, I only want what I want. I only want the thing that I have planned for myself. It's so easy so many times to just say, I'm not going to be obedient because it's not what I want for me. But we need to be obedient to his will, no matter the circumstance. So Jesus showed us obedience. What else does he show us? He shows us the importance of prayer. Now, this passage, I don't think is the main focus of this passage isn't prayer, but it's something that we see a lot in this passage, the importance of our prayers, the importance of our prayer life. Colossians 4.2 says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Philippians 4.6-7, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
First Chronicles 16.11 tells us, look to the Lord in his strength, seek his face always. And how do we do that? We do that through prayer and reading his word. You see, if Jesus went before the Father and prayed, believing it was important in a difficult situation, and we are told by him to pray, then why do we think that prayer is something that we really don't need to do? In all honesty, how often do we say, I will pray for you, or I'm praying about this, and we never actually go before the Lord in prayer? How often do we actually spend time talking with God? Laying out before God how important are how the things that we think are important, laying those things out before God. How often do we take things before Him? F. B. Meyer says it this way: the greatest tragedy of life is not unanswered prayer, but unoffered prayer. And E. M. Bounds reminds us that prayer honors God, acknowledges His being, exalts His power, adores His providence, and secures His aid. And far too often, we do try to enter into spiritual warfare without prayer, and we wonder why the flesh wins every single time. If we're not going to the Lord in prayer, if we're not praying in those moments where we feel tempted, if we're not filling in those, or praying in those moments where we're struggling, why do we expect to get aid from God? Why do we expect to master our, our human flesh when we refuse to go to Him in prayer? And I'll tell you what, I am thankful to be at a place where prayer is so important. It's not just the prayers we pray on Sunday mornings, but it's throughout the week. I am so thankful that I can go to anybody here and say, will you please pray for me? And I know that it's being done. I'm so thankful for our prayer group that meets on Monday night and our text chain that whenever we have any prayer request, it goes before our brothers and they pray for it. And I know they pray for it in that moment. I'm so thankful to be around godly people who want to pray each and every day, are always praying for every situation. Every Sunday morning, I'll share this, and I didn't tell them I was going to share this, but I'll share it anyway. I look forward to Sunday mornings because every Sunday morning, I get a text from my brother Randall telling me, man, I'm praying for you today. And I always tell him the same thing, I'm praying for you as well. I'm so thankful that we can pray before our Father, that we can lift up all of these things before our Father and give these things to Him. We need to pray each and every day, each and every time we have an opportunity to pray. Let us pray when we are feeling tempted, when we are feeling like we are in the midst of a battle, we need to pray. And so Jesus shows us obedience and He shows us the importance of prayer. And you see, these are valuable lessons that we learn in the garden but I think there's another thing that stands out to me. It's not specifically mentioned in this passage, but I think it's very evident in the passage, and that is the greatness of God's love for us. This passage shows us the greatness of God's love for us. You see, Jesus is here, and he's agonizing over what is about to happen the weight of all the sin on him, the fact that God is going to be turning his face from him because of this. And all of this is happening for one very important reason. Hebrews 10, 8 through 10 tells us this. First he said, talking about Jesus, first he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. Though they were offered in accordance with the law, then he said, here I am. 
I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first two to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they do, here's the truth. We were powerless. We were. We were powerless to do anything. We could not save ourselves. Sacrifices were temporary, and God's people were stuck in sin. Over and over and over again, this process of sacrificing animals for our sin and then just still being sinful, and it was temporary, and it was just this pattern over and over again of falling into sin. We were powerless to do anything. There was nothing that we can do ourselves. There was nothing we can do to fix our sinful nature. There's nothing that we can do on our own. But because of the love of God, we have been made free through the blood of Christ through his blood poured out on the cross for us, we've been made free. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And God shows his love for us. Jesus is here struggling to the point of death because he knew what was coming. And that thing that was coming was the thing that was necessary to save us from our sins, the sins that we were powerless to do anything against. But because of his love for us, he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And maybe you're here this morning and You've never accepted that gift of God's forgiveness. You've never given your life to him. If that's the case, what better time than now? He's an atoning sacrifice, blood shed for us. And we can go to him and we can receive forgiveness through him, through his son, through what he's done for us. And so if you're here and you've never made that decision on your connect cards, you can write it down and I'll talk with you. I'd love to talk with you. Or you can come talk to me now or one of the elders. We'd love to talk with you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're just struggling. Maybe the spirit is willing. You desire to do good. You desire to have a relationship with God that is so serious that you are so on fire for him. You desire that relationship, but right now it just feels like the flesh is weak and over and over and over again you find yourself falling down and you find yourself moving further and further away from him because of all, this thing, all these things that are happening in your life. And so maybe what you need to do this morning is to spend some time laying those things at his feet. Give those things to God. Spend some time where you're at praying, giving those things to him. If you need to pray, I'd love to pray with you. Man, in the garden, we learn about obedience. No matter what, no matter the situation, no matter the struggle, no matter what we are going through in life, we need to be obedient to his will, to his calling. And it's not always going to go according to us. It's not always going to follow our plan, our desires. But his ways are good. His will is good no matter what. And brothers and sisters, we need to pray. We need to pray 
so serious. We need to take prayer so seriously. Each and every day, we lift up before God when we feel tempted, when we feel we're struggling, when we feel like we can't do it on our own. We can't do it on our own. We need to take it before God. And so this morning, maybe that's what you need to do. You just need to spend some time in prayer. And so whatever decision you have to make this morning, wherever you're at, I pray that you would make a decision as we stand and we sing.